0: What's good, everyone? I'm Langston Clark, founder and organizer of Entrepreneurial Appetite, a series of events dedicated to building community, promoting intellectualism, and supporting Black businesses. In this special episode of Entrepreneurial Appetite's Black Book Discussion, we feature a conversation with Patrice Salton, founder of the DC Justice Lab, and Matthew Clare, author of Privilege and Punishment, How Race and Class Matter in Criminal Court.
1: Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. I appreciate you holding this space. I am Patrice Sultan. I'm the executive director of an organization called D.C. Justice Lab, and we are working to change the entire criminal legal system in Washington, D.C., and to make it a national model for reform in other places. And In addition to focusing on the front of the system and policing and the back of the system, the punishment part, I really love to move attention to the center of the system, what happens between bail and jail. And that's where my scholarship is and the course that I teach at at GW Law School here in Washington, D.C. Before this, I was an attorney and I worked on the Criminal Justice Act panel here in D.C. So I was much like the bar advocates that you'll hear us talking about in the book, that we're discussing this evening. And I'm very passionate about improving the level of representation that people receive when they are charged with criminal offenses. So just really excited to talk about this book and, a, and appreciative that we're here. I wanted to ask Dr. Claire to, to introduce yourself. And could you please also tell our guests a little bit about why you decided to write this book now?
2: Yeah, well, I uh, also want to sort of echo Patrice's thanking you, Langston, for for holding and creating this space. This is really a wonderful space to be in. And I'm, I'm really excited for the conversation with you, Patrice, and also with those of you who are for joining us. So my name is Matthew Clare. I'm a sociologist by training and I'm at Stanford University. And broadly, you know, I study social inequality and in particular, the cultural dynamics of social inequality. So how people make sense of inequality, how their understandings about the world reflect inequality and also maybe reproduce inequality and potentially challenge certain forms of injustice and inequality. And in particular, I'm interested in race in class dynamics. That's sort of the center of my interest. And I think for this book in particular, when I went to graduate school, I knew I was interested in studying and understanding and trying to fix inequality. I actually spent two years in Atlanta public schools In the middle of a teaching crisis, actually, there was a cheating scandal in 2009. Maybe some of you are aware of it, but basically what was happening was some teachers were changing incorrect answers to correct answers for students because they were so pressured by this broader policy of no child left behind to make sure that their students passed. And and they felt like they didn't have enough resources to be able to actually teach many of their kids. And so they had to just cheat on the state test. And so that really made me realize how structures and policy affect Cultural decision making and practices, right? And so I, I knew I wanted to study this more. And I thought when I went to graduate school, I would study educational inequality. But then I started graduate school in 2012. And of course, you know, that's when Trayvon Martin was killed by George Zimmerman. And I went to uh, protests and rallies in Boston that summer when George Zimmerman was not convicted of murdering Trayvon Martin. And that completely changed and and shifted my trajectory and what I wanted to study and what I wanted to devote my life to understanding, unpacking and, and hoping hoping to help improve. Unlike you, Patrice, I don't have a JD, but I actually was going to go off to law school and I ultimately decided to go the academic route instead. But I love that I still get to interact with lawyers and understand legal processes and try to help improve lawyer and legal practices. So that's just a little bit about me and sort of what motivated me to even begin to study exactly what you're talking about from bail to jail. I'll just briefly also note, you know, I think there's a lot of great work on policing, a lot of great work on incarceration, but hopefully this book alongside other books and work and and, and stuff and organizing that's happening on the ground, we can really unpack also what's happening between those two endpoints of the system, the beginning and endpoints of the system, which is the profound violence, the profound coercion, silencing that happens after someone is arrested and arraigned in court and then ultimately adjudicated.
1: Thank you. I want to make sure that everybody knows what book we're talking about. I know it was on the event flyer, but let me make sure that everybody can see the cover of the book, Privilege and Punishment. People want to check it out and haven't already. Before we jump into talking about the study, I want to say I really love the way you structured this book. I think it's such a good balance between narrative and analysis and the storytelling is is just really good. And it's not often that it's easy to read something that is, is diving in so deep to something that is really complicated. And you would think that you had all of the other degrees along (laughs) with the ones you already have in the way that you discuss our our legal system, but it was really, really a great read. So I want to start off with you telling us a little bit about what you studied here. What is it that you were examining and why did you decide to set your focus there?
2: Yeah. So starting this project, I knew and had read a lot of really solid and good research on disparities in court processes. So in, you know, the in and out decision, which criminologists refer to, like as in someone's convicted and the likelihood that they're sentenced to incarceration or not, the likelihood that their they're sentence are convicted to begin with or, or found not guilty, the likelihood that someone has a longer sentence of incarceration or a shorter sentence of incarceration. And broadly in that literature, we know there are profound race and class disparities that are not explained by legal characteristics that we think should matter like the nature of the offense or the length of the criminal record, right? So that suggests that there's a lot of disparity that is due to some form of racial and class-based discrimination and and just pure racism or classism. But we don't really know as much as why and and sort of how that unfolds, how people feel about that as they're going through the process and what are the particular sort of things that cause it and, and then thus particular leverage points where we can fix that. And so, you know, Early in my graduate school career, I started interviewing a lot of lawyers, public defenders, prosecutors, judges, trying to see how they view the system, how they treat defendants differently. But then for my dissertation, I really wanted to talk to people who are the clients of the system or defendants in criminal court, how they experience the system and how they're experiencing it differently along race and class lines. So this book is based on scores of in-depth interviews with defendants, not just, you know, sort of the typical defendant that we hear about. We know disproportionately in the system, Black folks, Latinx folks are disproportionately represented, poor people are disproportionately represented. But I also wanted to talk to white people. I wanted to talk to people who are well off economically. And this is sort of the privileged category of defendants. And surprisingly, there actually are increasing numbers given the rise of what I refer to as mass criminalization over the last 40 years. There's actually a surprising rise across all demographic groups. Um, So every demographic group has increased contact with the criminal court system over the past 40 years. Of course, it's most heavily affected and negatively impacted Black people and poor people, But, you know, there's still some white wealthy people in the system. But when they go through the system, it looks very different as I sort of uncover in this book. So I interviewed... About sixty, I think sixty-three people who are defendants. I followed several people as they interacted with their attorneys in real time. So I went to court with them. I sat in rooms with them um, as they interacted with their lawyers. I spoke to them after they went to court, and then I also embedded in a public defender's office in Boston. And, and all of this work, by the way, happened in Boston. So I'm in the Boston court system doing all of this work. Embedded in a public defender's office in Boston, got to know some public defenders. Followed three of them really closely as they interacted with their clients, and then I did. Uh, sort of just basic public ethnographic observations of the courts, things that honestly, I would encourage anyone who's interested in in the criminal legal system and and the problems of it to do, because anyone can go to a courtroom and sit there and observe. And so I did that systematically for over a hundred hours. I just sat in courtrooms and observed the quality and process of justice. And so those are the data that, are, that make up this book. And the last form of data is in-depth interviews with over 150 legal actors, so defense attorneys, prosecutors, and judges as well.
1: Well, I want to ask you about the attorney-client relationship and the different aspects of the role of counsel. So as a defense attorney, we have so many different tasks, right? We're writing motions, we're negotiating we're arguing in court, we're investigating, which I always thought was really fun and undervalued. Why is client counseling where you focused your attention? I mean, why is the relationship with the client worth examining as opposed to whether an attorney's good at all those other things that also affect the outcome of a case?
2: Yeah, that's a really great question. So, you know, when I went into this, I said, I am going to let my respondents lead me in the direction that they think is important and what's meaningful for them. And over and over again, when I'd interview defendants, so much of their frustration centered around their relationships with their lawyers, or on the flip side for the privileged folks, so much of what they felt was great was the protection that they felt from their lawyer. And so- That was interesting to me that sort of the main way that they experience the legal process is through their lawyer for better or for worse when they're going to the court system. So all of these things that lawyers are doing, you know, filing motions, investigating, You know, oftentimes the client may not actually be there in the moment that, you know, you're going to interview someone or investigating it, but they hear about it, of course, they learn what you, you know, learned and they see you maybe filing a motion in court, but for them, they are experiencing the court process immediately through phone calls with you coming and meeting you in your office, or when they go to court and they meet you, uh, maybe through a brief conversation in the courthouse hallway or observing you, arguing for them in court. So I was really interested then in what is this dynamic? What are these conditions that make this dynamic positive? And what are the conditions that make this dynamic and relationship negative? And I think also intellectually, this was important for me because as a sociologist, there's a lot of work on these kinds of professional client relationships, especially in schools and in doctor's offices. So there's a lot of research that studies interactions between teachers and students, teachers and parents, or, uh, you know, doctors and and their patients. And a lot of this work actually makes assumptions about poor folks and and disadvantaged folks racially as well, and how they interact with their, with professionals versus privileged folks and how they interact with professionals. And one thing that is a major implication of the book and and struck me theoretically as, as novel was The same exact sort of ways of behaving and and the quality of these uh, relationships that are described in studies of doctor-patient interactions and um, uh, teacher-parent and teacher-student interactions is the flip of what's happening in the courts. So real quick, I'll just sort of set that up is basically so... A lot of the sociological literature talks about how uh, privileged people, these are middle class people, wealthy people, white people, when they interact with their doctors, when they interact with teachers, they are assertive, they're demanding, they feel like they know a lot about their own bodies, if they're in the medical setting, or about how to ask for things in schools, they know more than the teacher. Whereas working class people and, and poor people of color are portrayed as deferential, that they don't have much institutional knowledge. The flip is exactly what I found in the courts. Poor folks, working class people of color, they know a lot about the legal system compared to privileged people. They're actually, they have what I refer to as cultivated legal expertise. They have routine interactions, of course, unfortunately with police and their communities and thus more interactions with the court system in their lives. Family and friends, vicariously, they have interactions with the legal system. And so they gain a lot of knowledge about how the court should Work, about how legal rights should work in theory. Whereas privileged people, they're quite naive and they completely defer to their lawyers. They feel like they have no idea what's going on. They don't have much institutional knowledge. But unfortunately, the same outcome is similar. Exactly. I love that. Yes, thank you, Azia. Uh, should, exactly. These legal rights and how they should operate. And that's actually really important. I hope we can talk more about that. But the same outcome happens, basically, in, in, is that privileged people still are advantaged, but they're advantaged for a different reason. And then, you know, poor people and working class people of color are disadvantaged, but for a different reason. They are basically punished and coerced and silenced for basically trying to advocate for themselves and advocate for their legal rights.
1: So Asia also asked a question through the Q&A feature, and I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about why you chose Boston and what did it feel like to be in that system in particular?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think... This was very much a case of first, it was close by, I had gotten to know a lot of legal actors there, but then it actually ended up becoming a kind of ideal case when I realized that I was focused on the attorney client relationship because Boston state courts are actually at least the public defense office in Boston. So it's called the committee for public counsel services. What is the larger organization that deals with appointed counsel, both people who are salaried public defenders who are state employees, and then also bar advocates who are private attorneys who sit court appointed and pick up a lot of actually 75% of the indigent caseload. But what's interesting about Boston is actually it's a pretty well-funded compared to other state public defense systems. It's one of the better funded ones. And so for me, that meant if I'm finding problems in this setting, If I'm finding a lot of frustration among disadvantaged defendants and how they feel that their attorneys are interacting with them or advocating for them, then I can imagine it must be far worse in a system that has far fewer resources. Because a lot of the reasons why defense attorneys silence, coerce, and punish defendants has to do with structural issues that they're facing, both pressures from prosecutors, but also caseload pressures. So just like having so many... Different clients that they have to serve, that they have to decide who am I going to devote time to and who am I not going to devote time to. And they tend to devote time to people who they just feel like they can get along with and are easier to work with rather than people who say, I have knowledge and expertise and I'd like to file a motion or I'd like to speak in court. It's much easier for many attorneys to you know, work with a client who's deferential to them. So that's why I chose, I won't say that's why I chose Boston, but that's why I think Boston is an ideal case. I chose Boston because I was, I was in graduate school there.
1: So you mentioned this idea of deference and how that looks a little bit different than it does in other settings, like in schools and doctor's offices. What about the response to deference versus assertiveness? How does that look? How do system actors in the criminal legal system respond to that? And how does it compare to other institutions and settings?
2: Yeah, so in the courts, lawyers and judges actually expect deference. I mean, the courts are, of course, a system of social control. It's a system of punishment. Whereas schools, at least ostensibly, and, you know, obviously this doesn't apply to like no excuses charter schools, right? But many schools tend to be places where they reward people actually, you know, speaking up, giving, you know, answering questions and engaging with the teacher. Um, They also reward Schools tend to reward parents who tend to advocate for their children, who tend to ask for things for their children. Uh, Teachers tend to actually defer, right, more so to parents rather than expect deference from parents. And indeed, what we see also in the school context is when working class people tend to be deferential to experts or authorities, they tend to be forgotten. And the system tends to just operate without them and without taking into account their needs. What we see in the attorney-client relationship context is And I sort of talk about three components of what I actually broadly refer to as delegation of expertise, but there's first among privileged people in the courts in their attorney-client relationship, there's first recognition that they're naive and have no idea what they're doing. They don't understand criminal law. Then there's sort of then seeking out expert advice, a desperation for someone to tell them what the best strategy or route is for an outcome that they want. And then the third sort of element is ultimate deference to that legal expert who is their lawyer. And so these three parts are sort of what's happening in the delegatory relationship with a privileged person. And it's treated positively because lawyers do want to to have their clients seek out their advice. And they also want their clients to understand that, you know, they're experts who have trained a long time, who've seen a lot of cases, and they uh, tend to prefer clients, at least those lawyers that I talk to who recognize that they are experts and that they may have knowledge that will work in front of a judge, knowledge that, you know, is not case law necessarily, because sometimes judges violate case law. Sometimes judges are, are, you know, uh, violating constitutional rights, left and right. So sometimes the rights that we think should be afforded to us, often in the everyday functioning of criminal courts across the United States, are just not the way that the game or system is played in front of certain judges. I
1: thought that was such an interesting finding because not just in other areas of life, but in other areas of our legal system, being assertive oftentimes is the only way to get the the result you want. And so to see that it is not necessarily treated as positively in our, in our courts was really interesting. Why do you think it is that deference and delegation are rewarded? Is it because that's what's actually preferred? Or is it because that's the way that system actors would themselves behave if they were in the same position and they they relate to people who are privileged in that regard?
2: Yeah. So here I don't explicitly state in the book because I think, and I'm only going to speculate, right? I, I don't know exactly why, but I do have theories. And I think it's, I think it's actually kind of both. And I think those complement each other. So I think one, it's like, it's the way that privileged people, people who look like us, people who have college degrees, people who, for many system actors who are white, right? You know, this is the way of being. But I also think it's true, too, that the court system is a unique system of intentional social control. The goal is to make someone, to compel someone ultimately, at least from the perspective of prosecutors and judges and the broader architecture of the courts, to admit fault and to, you know, ultimately. Compel them ultimately to, um, you know, accept whatever sort of, you know, probationary terms or or whatever sort of outcome, adjudicatory outcome that the court deems is appropriate for them to to give the the client. So you know that's different from a school, maybe not a no excuses charter school, but certainly you know a school that has more sort of pro social aims. Right, the goal isn't to necessarily just make the child you know, conform, but to help the child grow and to help them be a better person. Courts, I think, increasingly have some of these rehabilitative logics, right, that are flowing into them, but they're still punitive. So even drug courts, even mental health courts, ultimately, if someone does not comply, then they can be pulled back into the traditional court system and often treated harsh, more harshly because they didn't comply in the drug court or the mental health court that they were diverted to. So I think ultimately it has to do with What the purpose of a criminal law and criminal legal system is, which is to get people to comply and stop doing things that we have criminalized, whether we actually morally as as a society think they're wrong or not. But certainly legally, we have criminalized as a society.
1: That's come up for me so many times when talking to people about probation reform in particular, that there is this emphasis on obedience above all else, right? And if the goals of our criminal legal system are supposed to be safety or something other than obedience, why are we placing so much emphasis on a person's ability or willingness to to follow rules, and why are we punishing um, punishing their failure to do that more than we are the underlying harm that brought us into court in the first place? Um, can you talk a little bit about the pivot points that you observed in the attorney client relationships? What facilitates delegation well? What causes withdrawal or resignation or fracture in those relationships?
2: Yeah, you know, I think there are several sort of pivot points. I think the main, one main one, though, that sort of causes withdrawal, which is sort of what I describe as what tends to happen among disadvantaged people, they withdraw into either resistance where they they have a lot of legal knowledge and they're resisting the system. And I think, you know, paving the way, right, potentially for, you know, new appellate rulings, potentially, right, if they go to trial and, and they're, but they, they've created a record of, you know, why the police stop was biased or something, right? It's actually really powerful, potentially, even if their individual case is harmed. And then the second form of withdrawal that happens among disadvantaged people is what I refer to as withdrawal to resignation. So those two types of withdrawal have different explanations. The first one is mostly about mistrust of the lawyer. It's a sense that I've been discriminated against in the past. I've been mistreated by police. I've been mistreated by lawyers. The system has no care for me, you know, and the system really is not concerned about my needs. And some clients want to resist as sort of an act of reclaiming power. Some, it's inactive. Actually, they think this might help their case, right? Filing certain motions that maybe their lawyer doesn't think are are good motions to file, but they want to do it because they want to set the record straight about, you know, um, the unfairness of the police stop, for example, maybe racial bias that they've experienced in their community. And the only reason why they were stopped is because they were a black person, you know, rolling through a stop sign, had nothing to do with actually like any real reasonable suspicion. For the stop and then maybe they found something on them just because they were searching for something so I think that so so that emerges from living in neighborhoods that are routinely over policed, it emerges from being in a system too where they feel that public defenders have different resources than mm-hmm. private attorneys. There's a feeling that private attorneys are going to litigate certain motions. And to some extent, that does happen. They they do more for less motions potentially for clients who really want them if they're paying for it. Whereas public counsel won't do that for clients necessarily who, you know, potentially who aren't paying for it. On the withdrawal into resignation side, that's more so actually caused by. A lot of people who are disadvantaged, not just because, you know, they grew up in a poor neighborhood or, you know, they're being surveilled by police because they're black or Latinx, but because they're dealing with mental health issues or they're dealing with addiction issues that make the court process actually less important in their lives. Like the outcome of the court process may be less important than dealing with, you know, whatever addiction troubles they're dealing with or dealing with the fact that they have no housing can actually be more important to them than the potential of like going through a court system where maybe their case is ultimately dismissed. Yeah, they'll spend a few days in jail, but actually it's more important to figure out how in the world they're going to get long-term housing. And so they sort of withdraw from their lawyers because they have more important things on their mind. So those are some of the reasons. And I think there are solutions to each of these problems. So for the withdrawal into to resistance, some of the solutions are, lawyers should actually listen to their clients. They should actually try to litigate certain motions that maybe they their legal training has told them is frivolous, but actually could pave the way for, you know, thinking differently about police practices, for example. On the resignation side, the solution there, I think, is sort of a more holistic defense model where you're bringing in not just a lawyer to deal with the legal problem, but you're bringing in caseworkers, you're bringing in mental health professionals, without a punitive sort of aspect to it, just like if you want it, we're here to help. When you're bringing in those people to assist with the underlying, I think you mentioned this earlier, the underlying harm or problem that that brought them in in the first place.
1: We're getting more questions from the audience. Brandon wanted to know what went well. Did you observe any bright spots in the courtroom or in relationships with lawyers that would indicate themes of rehabilitation, harm reduction, or restorative justice?
2: Yeah. Great question. What went well? You know, as a sociologist, I'm expert at telling you what's bad and what's wrong. So uh, this this question is, is a really good one because, you know, I, I am typically focused on like what a problem is, but I will say what went well typically happened for the privileged folks. So in chapter three, I talk a lot. Of, that's where I focus the privileged folks. And I think what goes well, there are good communication and all, between attorney and client but also willingness of an attorney in some instances when they feel like their client is someone who they like, even it, it gets to that level of just like, do I like you? Do I want to engage with you? Right. And that can matter because um, I you know, many of the lawyers who I talk to and I, I noticed this also while observing would offer things to certain clients that they wouldn't offer to others. Like for example, you know, When you're a public defender, you are dealing with the case in front of you and the charge in front of you, and you have no obligation to help this person after that case is resolved. However, I noticed some public defenders with certain clients would offer things like, hey, you know, after this is resolved, come back to me in like a year if you want to get this, you know, you know, this case removed from your record. I'd be happy to help you with that. Right. Or you know, even in the process of adjudicating adjudicating the specific case, there are certain things also that would come up or be offered that may not be offered to other clients who they just didn't like as much. So real in-depth conversations and long, you know, questions about Particular aspects like, can I reduce the cost of this probation? How can I reduce the cost of it? Will you help me, like, advocate for me in front of the judge to reduce how much I have to spend per month? Hey, can you actually allow me or advocate for me to go to this, you know, nonprofit to do my community service hours rather than this other nonprofit to do my community service hours? Hey, can you help me uh, get drug testing at this court location, which is closer to where I live rather than that court location, which is farther from where I live? So, those types of things that truly, really compound and do matter for the quality of people's lives while they're under the surveillance of the court system were offered to some clients, but not others, often on the basis of the strength and quality of the attorney-client relationship.
1: And there's so many things that fall outside of the scope of what the court is requiring you to do or is going to pay you to do. Right. And a lot of what we think about in terms of rehabilitation and restoration is, is going to be optional for that reason. So it's, it's interesting to see people going the extra mile. And I guess that's a, a good thing if we can get it to be uniform <laughs> in some way. Exactly. Um, Systematic and
2: like not based on like, What I argue is like a form of race and class discrimination, because I argue that the attorney client relationship, the quality of it is totally racialized and classed. And so making these decisions about who you're giving more resources to, who you're going to spend more time with on the basis of how you feel about them, right? Or on the basis of the quality of the relationship that has implications for discrimination rooted fundamentally in race and class differences.
1: Well, my friend Aisha asked a question about race. She wants to know, did you notice any differences in considering the race of attorney or implicit bias? For example, did black public defenders do better for black clients?
2: Yeah. So I didn't notice anything systematic. So, and that was like kind of not unfortunate, but I was like, oh, you know, you might expect that a black attorney would be better and, and care more about a black client. And there were cases, right? I talked in, in chapter four about Sybil, who's a black woman attorney who I followed very closely. And she talked a lot about, I mean, actually all of them, Tom, Sybil, and Selena. Tom was white, Selena was uh, Latinx, and, and Sybil was black. They all cared about racial justice and inequality. Um, but Sybil was much more likely to, she had one client, and she really liked a lot. And she talked a lot about, you know, how this client He's a big black man. And the only reason why he's in the system is because he's a big black man. Stereotypes around race, but also his size, the way he carried himself in the world and the way he moved through the world and was treated because of that. So there were comments about that. But I also noticed when and again, right, I'm centering the defendant's perspective. When I would talk to defendants and I'd ask them about their lawyers and I asked them about the race of their lawyers, there wasn't a consistent response. So when there was race matching for marginalized defendants, there are examples of marginalized defendants, like I think Tim, for example, and others in the book, he states and Tim opens chapter one, but he's a black guy, he's poor, he, he lives in a homeless shelter in and out. And he told me, yeah, you know, I had a black lawyer, a black woman lawyer. I thought she was gonna be great for me, but ultimately it didn't work out. She kept stereotyping me on the basis of class. Um, so I think we have to remember that, of course, black lawyers are elite, right? They're privileged in many ways, right? They uh, have a JD, they are highly educated. Maybe they're not making the most money, especially public defenders, but they do have a lot of economic and social and cultural capital, or sorry, social and cultural capital, not necessarily economic, but social and cultural capital for sure.
0: Hey everyone, thank you again for your support of Entrepreneurial Appetite's Black Book Discussions. Beginning this season, we are inviting our listeners to support the show through our Patreon website. The founding 55 patrons will get live access to our monthly discussions for only $5 a month. Your support will help us hire an intern or freelancer to help with the production of the show. Of course, you can also support us by giving us five stars, leaving a positive comment, or sharing the show with a few friends. Thank you for your continued support.
2: And that can lead to stereotypes, anti-Black stereotypes even that are that are classed, um, such as what Tim experienced about how she looked at him like just a poor Black guy. And she expected him to have a lengthy criminal record and was confused as to why he didn't. And he kept saying, hey, I, I don't have any other record in any other state. I really don't. Like, I'm not lying to you. Please believe me. And he felt that She wouldn't believe him because of his race and his class, even though she was Black. So I don't have a straight, easy story for that. I'd imagine, though, on average, you know, Black public... I don't don't know of any work around this, but I'd imagine on average, you know, Black public defenders could be better for Black clients and Latinx could be better. But I think it's really... Making sure that all lawyers, regardless of race, are very aware of racial dynamics, of racism that their clients are experiencing, of class issues and class dynamics that their clients are experiencing. And that's really what makes the difference.
1: Oh, Kiana asked about exactly that and said, do you touch on trauma informed lawyering and how lawyers can start recognizing how certain responses from their clients have an underlying root cause?
2: Yeah, fantastic. So I don't uh, mention specifically trauma-informed lawyering in the book. In the the conclusion, I do mention holistic defense sort of along these lines with respect to lawyers embedding with and working with other experts, right? Because, you know, I think lawyers could sort of start to uh, try to have trauma-informed practices, but at the same time, their their best thing and expertise is to advise their client on specific legal matters. We've got social workers who can complementarily work them to advise on to advise on like trauma and 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 potential forms of individual and community resilience and how that how that operates and how that could could operate in the attorney-client relationship, but also outside of the legal system. I also think client-centered lawyering is something that you know is is one possible way forward too, where you know maybe you can't fully understand what your client is going through, but you can still listen to what they want. So maybe you don't understand why they want it, but if they're telling you they want something, you have to give respect to their ability and their competence to be able to understand the consequences of what that means. So if they really want to go to trial and you think it's a losing strategy and you've informed your client of all the reasons why this is probably going to result in a worse outcome, you need to ultimately respect your client's wishes. And of course, there are many cases of attorneys who withdraw because they don't want to take their case. They don't want to take their client's case to trial. And, you know, I actually did see an instance of uh, an attorney withdraw simply because he didn't want to file a motion that his client wanted him to file and didn't want to even engage with it or have a conversation about it. So he ultimately withdrew from the relationship and the client was left without a lawyer and, and had to You know, scrambled to figure out how they were going to pay for a lawyer because they weren't necessarily uh, considered indigent by the court.
1: When you say you have to listen or you should consider, what is the downside of not doing that? How can these issues not just stem from inequality, but also perpetuate inequality?
2: Yeah. So, okay. So, A lot of these issues, exactly right, emerge from unequal resources and communities, discriminatory treatment by police, racism in everyday life. The consequences of negative attorney-client relationships are, you know, lengthier engagement with the legal system. So sometimes I noticed many defendants in my study who were withdrawn from their lawyers would be passed around to new lawyers, right? And so that movement to new lawyers lengthens the amount of time you're under supervision by the court. I also noticed typically what would happen as well is clients who you know, did not have good relationships with their attorneys, felt silenced or ultimately coerced to plead guilty, but never actually felt, and this is important for survivors and victims, never actually felt any desire to actually tell their their victims like what harm or wrong that they did. And I think this is actually something that's a, a missed opportunity because our system is so adversarial. Clients have no incentive to actually share what they did do wrong, Or actually tell and share their story and try to rehabilitate, heal with with the person that they harmed. And so many defendants who are disadvantaged in the system because of their poor attorney-client relationship and because of their feelings of how they're treated poorly by the court leave the process feeling like they are a victim of the legal system, which is true in many ways they are. But then that means that they have no obligation to those who they may have actually harmed when they you know, engaged in their harmful behavior. And that's really a problem psychologically, right? Because then you're creating a system where people feel harmed and therefore feel no debt or obligation to those who they may have also harmed precisely because of the way that the system is operating.
1: That answered the next question I was going to ask, which was about why we should care about anything other than the outcome of the case. But can you say a little bit about why defendants should care about more than just the outcome of the case or why they do? You stated that like for many of them, there's more at stake than just the formal legal outcomes. Can you say what you meant by that?
2: Yeah. You know, I was, I was surprised. And I think this is actually a great avenue for reform. And whenever I talk to public defenders, audiences, I'm like, identify those clients who really just want to crash the system, those clients who really are like, you know what, let's use my case as an example. Let's let's see how far this can go. And I think there were a surprising number by no means all and by no means a majority of disadvantaged defendants who withdraw into resistance are this way. But a good number of them have much more at stake than their individual case. They're sick and tired of the constant surveillance of their neighborhoods. They're tired of police fabricating and planting evidence on them and their loved ones. And so they want to, you know, basically try to contradict the lie of a police officer on on the stand. So they do want to file that motion to suppress evidence or even dismiss a charge because they want to pull the police officer on the stand or they want to take their case to trial for the same reason. Um, So I think this is what is important to think about collective forms of resistance that are possible through individual forms of resistance to what an attorney want, typically wants a client to do, thinking, oh, but you should think about what's in your individual best interests. And many clients, not many, but a good number of clients who are disadvantaged think, actually, I'm more interested in what's collectively in my community's advantage, not just for me as an individual. The type of clients who are this way are clients who have a higher political consciousness and clients also who have been routinely involved in the system. Not you're not going to find this as often, at least not in my sample, among clients who this is their first time in the system or they don't really have a strong political consciousness.
1: That's really interesting. Like I remember you writing about how the stakes can be different once oppression becomes routine, right? That that's a different environment to live in. And I hear you now talking about how, you know, the the focus can be you know, what is in the community's best interest, but is it also about what's in that person's own individual long-term interest? Like maybe that's they true. don't want to be yeah. <laughs> harassed by that same cop or have the, or live under the same conditions that they did that led them to that point.
2: Yeah, no, that's such a great point. Right. So like, Thinking on the short-term versus the long-term is also a component of this. I actually don't think I phrased I phrase it that way at all. And I love that you're phrasing it that way. And, you know, I, I think that's a great way to think about it. I actually have to look back. I want to look back in my field notes and in my interviews to see if anyone actually frames it that way. It was common for them to frame it as like community uh, versus individual, but I think that's spot on, right? Long-term, once they get out of jail, if, you know, if they take their case to trial, they know it's going to lose. Okay. But like long term, the potential for this police practice to stop is going to make their individual lives better once they're back in the community.
1: I'm going to ask you some questions that are not (laughs) in the book as well. Thanks for entertaining the ones that were a little bit outside of what you wrote already. But I think. No one wants an attorney who ignores them or disparages them, but I'm interested in your take on the other extreme, right? Like what happens when attorneys see themselves as as saviors and are pathologizing and infantilizing clients and assigning no personal responsibility to clients? Can problems arise in that kind of an attorney-client relationship?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So I didn't observe that. But like, as you said, yeah, I'll speculate uh, here. Um, you know, I didn't observe it in, in among the attorneys that I spoke to or from the defendant's perspective when they were describing their different lawyers. But for sure, yeah, a savior mentality can totally go wrong. Forms of white saviorism or, you know, elites thinking that they need to help or uplift the poor can totally go wrong and complete like lack of willingness to have hard conversations is not at all what is going to allow for a positive attorney-client relationship. For the privileged who had positive attorney-client relationships, sometimes there were hard conversations, but they knew their lawyer had their back and they knew their lawyer understood their ultimate goal. So, you know, there can be hard conversations about why a certain motion won't work or why a certain legal strategy is not advisable. And so attorneys need to make sure that they're not totally you know giving in and saying whatever you want that's what we're going to do it's really the attorneys the the attorney has to be the expert to say hey these are the possible things that could come from these different options and, and, and potential ways of going through the legal system it's your choice though right so the choice comes in there once the person's fully informed so fully informing a client about various avenues and legal routes is something that all lawyers should always do. And I think the savior complex that would remove that aspect of being a good lawyer is totally problematic and, and really could make things really bad if, if that were a systematic practice.
1: I'm telling you, you could teach a course on legal ethics and movement lawyering without being <laughs> a lawyer. Like this is just it's, it's so much part of the everyday conundrum that we have to try to address. We see this happen over and over again, at mm-hmm. least in, in Washington, D.C., I'm wondering if you have a prescription for people who want to do this work, how should they view their role as a defense attorney in, in relationship to their clients? Are they teacher? Are they advocate? Are they substituting themselves for the person they represent? What is, you could describe that, that role?
2: Yeah. You know, I think, I think there are two things that I like to tell public defenders. So one is when you're client facing and you're working individually with a client, you have a certain role. But then there's a role as a member of the bar, or a member of the broader public defense office, or a member of a nonprofit or a community organization, or just a neighbor, right? And I think when you have a client, you are and in, in, you're in that individual relationship, you are an advocate. You are someone who needs to understand what your client wants and work toward within of course as a lawyer you you have to work within certain you know legal bounds you can't do things that are you know illegal or frivolous types of things but you do want to do as much as you can to center what your client wants and so that type of client relationship and centering what your client wants is what I would argue, Individually, a lawyer should do, but a public defender as a member of the public defense team, as a member of a broader office, as a community member can be completely different. They can advocate for changes to policies and laws structurally. Um, They can advocate for different ways to think about adjudicating harm so they can advocate for restorative justice processes. They can advocate for moving so much of what's happening right now in the criminal court system out of the court system to begin with in the first place. They can advocate for not just decriminalizing, but legalizing certain uh, things that have been criminalized. And then they can also sort of work alongside exactly what you're sort of suggesting with respect to movement law. They can work alongside social movements in ways that, you know, are small, like helping them to figure out how to, you know, I don't know, submit to be able to you know, have a protest and, and just like submit to their city council, you know, certain things, or it can be sort of more litigation style, uh, things like taking certain cases and, and doing impact litigation. So, you know, I think there are multiple pathways that lawyers can take, but those are the sort of like the two character sort of examples of sort of ideal or prototypical types of interaction that I think public defenders can do. That sort of client facing work and then the more structural work.
1: One thing that I emphasize in my course a lot is that we don't just have a right to be represented. We have a right to represent ourselves. And oftentimes people think of that as more of a fringe, right? Or this rare instance or a, you know, catch all safeguard or something like that. But it is very much a right. And it's it's codified in the same way as our other rights. There have been exactly two occasions where I've seen that go well, where an attorney assisted someone in representing themselves all the way through the end of the disposition of a case. And I'm wondering what you think about that. Should we instead just have lawyers serve the role of teaching people how to represent themselves really well? And then that way, we don't have to worry about the person complaining that their expressed interest wasn't represented in court.
2: Yeah, you know, I think that's interesting. And I do think that there could be a system where that is a good pathway forward. I worry, though, because of the civil side and how we see pro se litigants on the civil side I mean, sort of the difference between those who are represented and those who aren't in and, and various outcomes. But I do actually imagine a type of system of holding people accountable where the lawyer is totally not totally, but hopefully eventually totally removed from the equation, but is definitely not the central actor in the way that they currently are. So I'm thinking about restorative justice processes, but I'm thinking about them in a way that they're totally removed from the criminal legal process. So right now, the way a lot of restorative justice works is it's diversion from the prosecutor and you have to, you know, the victim and and the prosecutor have to agree. And then if it doesn't work out in the restorative justice process, the person, you know, can go back to the traditional court system. You know, a world where it's just the restorative system and in the restorative system, there's no chance of a punitive outcome. There's only a chance of coming up with a plan for the person who harmed to prevent that future harm and also reconcile with the person who they harmed. But there's no like jail sentence. There's no like intense surveillance. There's no GPS monitoring. That kind of world, I think totally. Having a person being able to represent themselves could fly in that kind of world and be a really a beautiful way of hopefully allowing for more articulation of not just what the person potentially did wrong and admitting some aspects of what they did wrong and defending some aspects of what they didn't do wrong, but were alleged to have, but also could have, help that person be able to articulate also how they want to see the world differently, what sort of resources they need, what caused the underlying, um, you know, what causally made them harm the other person, And sort of what resources are needed to prevent that from happening again in the future. Um, That sort of world and and space, I think, could be, if not completely lawyerless, certainly this type of model where you're saying a lawyer could advise, but not be the central actor as they are now in in most traditional court cases that are adjudicated.
1: Do you want to say more about some of the other solutions or potential solutions that you offer in the book, such as, you know, giving people more... Choice in the in the person who represents them, and and how do you think that would play out, and why would that be better?
2: Yeah, so I sort of talk about three kinds of solutions: like one at the attorney-client level, one at the institutional level, and one at the societal level. And honestly, it gets more radical as you go down. So, you know, there there are some things that are you know reforms that could probably be passed tomorrow and would not really. I think they would have a a, a important impact, but they wouldn't be that costly. So, I think they're actually really easy to implement. Like. Swapping attorney or swapping clients within attorney's offices when a client and an attorney don't get along, maybe uh, suggesting that another attorney pick up the case, making that institutionalized by by having judges when they assign counsel at arraignment, instead of doing it randomly, allow the client more choice in, in who they want to be their attorney. Of course, there are limits to that potentially if there's some awesome attorneys, probably like you are, Patrice, who would get all the clients And then, you know, obviously there would be issues with that, but maybe you could replicate yourself, but, you know, and and then I think institutionally there are, there are a lot of changes, but I'll skip to the more radical societally, you know, I very much advocate for removing the bulk of things. I think we could do this tomorrow, especially in the misdemeanor system. I mean, you know, charging people for turnstile hopping, charging them for marijuana possession, charging them for disorderly conduct when really it was probably a police officer upset because they felt disrespected. These things do not need to be charged. And I think that there are a lot of so-called progressive prosecutors who are declining to charge these things, who are doing mass dismissals, and that's great. But this needs to be a structural thing where we have legalized these things. We don't allow police departments to even arrest people for these things. That is like an immediate thing that, you know, and I think there are places that have shown, and actually there's a report that just came out of Boston, a friend of mine, Felix Owusu, actually just published this report, but basically found that, you know, some of the DA Rachel Rollins's, uh, you know, policy to stop charging certain offenses had no effect on recidivism. So we can do these things without a negative effect. There's no increase in crime rates because people are no longer charged with jumping over turnstiles. Right? It's it's okay. We can do it, and it won't lead to an immediate increase in crime rates. I think that's that's one thing. The second thing is not just ending these things or abolishing these things but also building up community-based resources that prevent people from engaging in things that we may actually think are harmful, like harming, assaulting other people, sexual violence, murder. Of course, these things are very harmful and we do need to hold people accountable after they've committed these, these crimes, but we can also prevent these crimes in much better ways from occurring in the first place by investing in mental health services that are non-carceral by investing in housing, by investing in healthcare, by investing in education, by decreasing wealth inequality, by giving people housing. So many things that we should be investing in rather than investing in constantly pushing and pulling people through the criminal courts. I mean, in California, we spend $4 billion. I go on on this. In California, we spend $4 billion on the criminal courts every year. Why? I don't understand. We have a housing crisis. Let's spend more money on those houses. And then we won't have people who are being pulled into the courts as often. So, yeah, that, that's that's the more radical thing. That's the more politically difficult thing. But I think there's a lot of conversation around these things, often framed in, in, in the term abolition, and they're powerful. And I think the fact that we're even having a conversation where the president of the United States has to say, fund the police, I disagree with him. But the fact that he has to say that means that defund abolition and those really radical ideas are entering the mainstream in a way that they were not five years ago. And that's really exciting because that means that people are having to grapple with and think, what, what do we mean by abolition? What do we mean by defund? Is this something maybe I do support? So, yeah.
1: We have a few more minutes. Okay. So you identified some, some things that we know can be precursors to system involvement, like a lack of housing, but there's more in your book about a common thread you noticed about adolescence. Can you say a little Mm, bit about some of the commonality you observed there?
2: Yeah, uh, that is something that I don't really talk about as much when I talk about the book, but there's a whole chapter on that, as, as, you, as you are recognizing. Yeah, that's the first chapter. And, uh, you know, one thing I think, you know, I, I'm interested in inequality, right? But one thing that I noticed that even among people who are well off or white, there's a lot of sadness, harm, and what I refer to as alienation going on yeah, maybe they're not pulled into the criminal courts because of it in the way that black folks are and poor people are, but they're still grappling with drug addiction, mental health issues, violence in the home, uh, you know, difficulties in school, um, inattention from teachers and parents. And so I refer to this broadly as alienation or separation from broader norms of society, from other institutions like family, school, workplace. And I think, um, you know, I mean, there's work on this, you know, Dying of Whiteness and, and other books, you know, that look at sort of like, I think we often in the public conversation, there's this imagination that, you know, poor people, black people have it the worst off. True, we are treated the worst by most institutions. True, we are criminalized. True, we, um, you know, wealth gap and, and housing gap. But there are a lot of poor white folks and they are struggling and I really think that one political pathway forward is white people recognizing that these policies and programs that are framed as, you know, you know, Obamacare or, you know, whatever, you know, other social welfare program is framed as only helping poor black people. Actually, no, it's going to help a lot of white people, too. And if you frame it that way, there can allow for hopefully solidarity, you know. I don't know, in this political day and age. Yes, exactly. Collective liberation, right? Solidarity and collective liberation across race and class lines. Thank you, Brandon, for that comment. You know, I think that's what I'm hopeful for. I know this political climate is wild and so polarized and so racist, but I am hopeful that as more people recognize the massiveness of our criminal legal system and the massive trauma and harm that's happening, not just in communities of color, but also, you know, in white communities where maybe in suburbs where maybe it's hidden and police aren't actively investigating these issues, that maybe people can come to a form of collective liberation
1: and solidarity. I love that as a final point. This was this was great. I, re- I really appreciate you fielding uh, all of my many questions yeah. that all over the
2: pool. <laughs> no, Please. no, I appreciate you. I'm, I'm so glad to meet you and you as well, Langston, and everyone in the audience. I, I love this conversation. I hope, yeah, jump in my, in my email inbox and I hope we can continue it for any of you who, who are interested in continuing the conversation. Thank
0: you all both for joining us. I, I do want to ask each of you one question. And Dr. Claire, the first question is for you. I feel appetite, we kind of function like a book club, right? And so because of that, I actually have two questions for you. The first question is, if you were going to write another chapter in a book, what would it be and what would it be
2: about? And then also, what are you reading right now? Oh, wow. Okay, good questions. Great questions. So if I were to write another chapter in this book, luckily, I've actually written it. It's not a chapter in the book, but it's something you can read. It's something that I publish in California Law Review. That is literally the, the chapter I would write. It's a chapter called, well, the, the law review article is called Courts in the Abolition Movement. Mm. And that last bit where I was really saying I could talk for a long time with Patrice, that was because I have a lot of thoughts. You know, when I published this book in 2020, in November, 2020, I had sent it to the publisher right before George Floyd was murdered. And also that we learned about Brianna, you know, Brianna Taylor had, I think she had been killed at that time, but we didn't in the national conversation, learn about until March. So I had already submitted the book and I didn't engage with abolition as much as I wish I had. So now I've written that abolition chapter and I'm, I'm, I really, my politics has really moved in that direction. A book that I'm reading now. Okay. So I'm not actually reading now, but I do want to plug it. How the word is passed is a fantastic book that I think really helped, could help, and, and has helped many people grapple with the history of slavery in the United States. And also there's one um, essay that looks at, you know, the history of slavery and, and plantations that now have become a prison, right? And so Angola in particular is, is the site that he's looking at, but he makes a broader argument about sort of the link, right? And, and you know, the analogy that Michelle um, Alexander has talked about with respect to the new Jim Crow and the link between slavery, Jim Crow, and now mass incarceration. He does that very well in his book. Yeah. Linkson, that was really hard because I have a lot of books that I'm reading now and they're just like sitting right across like, should I choose any of those books? But maybe I'll email uh, everyone to some other book recommendations that I'm reading and that I love. And as I'm asking Patrice her question, Dr. Claire, if you could type
0: your Twitter on there so people might want to tweet out and ask you some questions that way as well, if you're comfortable with that. So Patrice, I know that a lot of the conversation centered on Dr. Claire's book. I want to give you a few minutes just to talk about how you started the D.C. Justice Lab. And what was what was the moment where you were like, I'm going to start this. I'm going to I'm going to do this.
1: Well, the moment that I decided to do it was the moment that I really believed that people were interested and, and ready for big changes and got excited that the opportunity was there and it felt if not within reach, but just outside my grasp. And if I stretch a little farther, I could actually get to some of the the changes I wanted to see. I came out of my law practice to work on a really special project, rewriting the entire DC criminal code. And that meant changing the definitions of all the penalties and offenses at once. And it was the nerdiest thing I've ever done. It was such an awesome undertaking, thousands of pages long. And I realized that I... I'm basically the only Black person who's done anything that comprehensive, who's had the luxury of sitting in a basement for years on end, taking that close a look at penal codes and how to write them better. And none of them are written well. And it's an exercise in, in legal scholarship, but also it's this cool kind of moral philosophy thing. And I wanted to take that new skill set and do something else with it. And so I wanted to work with law students and returning citizens and survivors of crime to write better laws and being equipped with that skill to actually not just develop the idea, but write it out and then advocate for it makes such a difference. We have so many well-intentioned laws that don't work at all (laughs) because they're just not written thoughtfully enough and and carefully enough. And it's much easier to just say, it shall be unlawful to X, Y, Z, and it shall be punished by this many years. And so we have thousands and thousands and thousands of laws that read that way instead. And so DC Justice Lab was born in in the summer of 2020. And it's been a great adventure since then. And the revised criminal code that I just mentioned is now pending before our our city council.
0: Fantastic. And I got an extra question for you. So I know you were reading Dr. Claire's book. Are there any other books that you're reading that you would suggest for the audience to, to, to read?
1: I was hoping you weren't going to ask me that because I just came back from vacation and I've been reading celebrity (laughs) memoirs. That's all right. One that I I recommend to students that work with DC Justice Lab all the time is James Foreman Jr.'s book, Locking Up Our Own. And DC is just this great kind of example of how we don't just have a problem with white people over criminalizing black people in a city like chocolate city where you have a black mayor black council black police chief black judges black prosecutors we have an all black system an all black system and to understand how that happens i think it's just a really important insight to hold to hold close so that we're not repeating the same mistakes or, or putting the energy in the wrong place. And so I, I really like the way he laid that out and the, the narratives he shares are, are from DC and it's judges I recognize and places I recognize. So, So it's a good one to read here. And I'd also be happy to like share some more books from my book list by email with everybody who was here too.
0: Thank you for joining this edition of Entrepreneurial Appetite's Black Book Discussions. If you like this episode, you can support the show by becoming one of our founding 55 patrons for access to our live discussions. You can also subscribe to the show, give us five stars, and leave a comment. In our next episode, join us for a discussion with Dr. Sharice J. Nelson, author of the Congressional Black Caucus, 50 Years of Fighting for Equality, and Damonte Alexander, founder of the Black Equity Pack.